So we're reading from Romans 1 and starting verse 18 to the end of the chapter. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of every murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Last week, we looked more intently at verses 18 to 23 from our reading this morning. And so this week, we will move our focus on to verses 24 to 32 with the understanding that this is very much part two of the message on Romans 1, 18 to 32, and that all of the main expository points remain the same, but with a more in-depth look at the remainder of the passage. This also means that we will be handling a passage that addresses the sin of homosexuality. Now, if you find that statement offensive... Please listen carefully to the end, because it is my goal to offend everyone equally this morning. Last week, we spoke about the personal wrath of God, that indomitable will of God in opposition to evil, His inflexible resistance to sin, and determination to annihilate it in every shape and form. We also learned that all people possess knowledge of God, but that that knowledge has been repressed and distorted so that it is not saving them. Hence, all people everywhere who turn against God are without excuse because they know the truth. 
Now, in our passage this morning, we see the way in which this well-deserved wrath of God is revealed. Romans 1, 24 to 28. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations with, for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so we see here three times the way in which the wrath of God is revealed against those who, verse 21, do not honor God rightly for who He is or give thanks to Him. And so verse 24, therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Three times it is repeated that God handed people over to sin. And this is striking because in the Old Testament, when the wrath of God is revealed in judgment, He gives those who are judged over to their enemies, demonstrating that this is the same God exercising an identical practice in His wrathful judgment. He gives them over. In modern times, under the influence of deism and an enlightenment perspective, some interpreters have understood God's wrath as merely the result of impersonal laws of cause and effect. But this interpretation fails to recognize Paul's worldview, that is the Old Testament and the Jewish view, that God is vitally and personally involved in His creation, inflicting judgment on both Israel and the pagan nations as a personal decision, handing nations over to their enemies, and in the case of individuals, handing them over in slavery to the chief enemy and slaveholder of humanity, sin. So this is God's MO. When people sin, there are natural consequences, certainly, and he warns them against that. But he also goes further, and they go further than they ever intended. He hands them over. 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 and 12 speaks of those who refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so it's not only here in Romans that it speaks of God giving people a debased mind, sending them a delusion. They've already chosen to resist God. They've already chosen that they will not love the truth. They've already traded the truth for a lie, and so he gives them a push, gives them a delusion. And we will see this thought developed further in Romans 9 in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And so we want to see this here now in the beginning of Romans so that when we come to Romans 9, we're just not totally upset by all the crazy things that Paul's going to say. 
We're going to see here, it established, and also in 2 Thessalonians, that God does give people a push. He hands them over. God is not a bystander who merely permits the immoral consequences to develop. He is personally involved, making real decisions of judgment and mercy, in some cases handing people over to the product of their own desires with a push beyond where their natural intelligence would necessarily take them. The semantics of this verb, give, demands an active role. God does not simply let the boat go. He gives it a push downstream. Specifically, there is an inhuman foolishness which results from refusing to honor God and give Him thanks. An unfit mind is the fruit of seeing God as unfit. If God is truth, then when we reject truth, we reject an important part of the logical workings of our mind. We become debased in our thinking. This is so readily apparent in our world that one unbeliever, a professor of evolutionary biology, has said that human stupidity goes beyond the organic, which is exactly the case according to Scripture. We're, our society is stupider than it should be possible with how intelligent human brains can be. God gives them a push. Romans 121, uh, I'm going to read Romans 121 and 22 and then verse 28. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And And then verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So notice here that when we see the foolishness of our society and the debased minds which surround us, we should not think that somehow God's plan has gone awry or that the powers of evil are prevailing. My, my dad and I used to pre, uh, pray together with an elderly retired pastor who, whenever he'd pray, he'd go into quite some detail about the advancements of the powers of evil in our world and how the, the devil was making great inroads in his plans against God's people. You know, basically, the world's going to hell in a handbasket kind of stuff. And the problem is that that is not how Scripture describes the world. No wonder so many people live in fear and anxiety over the effects of sin all around us. You know, if you're seeing the world as it is, and it's causing you anxiety and fear and concern, and oh no, evil's taking over, you have not understood what the Scripture has to say about this. Many Christians have this dualistic worldview, where in a sense there are are two gods. Of course, they'd never say it that way. But in a sense, there's two gods. There's the benevolent good God who is trying his best to accomplish good things for humanity. And he's struggling against this malevolent arch nemesis, the devil. And so there's the power of good and the power of evil. And they're wrestling with one another. So many people struggle with the emphatic doctrines in Romans because they have this weak sauce view of God where he is trying to accomplish his plans, but is so often thwarted in some aspect or another by the devil or by the choices of human beings, and so he's forced to settle down with whatever limited good he's able to pull off. This is a disgusting view of the sovereign God. This is not what Scripture teaches us about who God is. 
This is a blasphemous and distorted image of the true God who actively and sovereignly rules over all his creation. This is not to downplay the real threat of our adversary, the devil, 1 Peter 5, 8, who prowling around like a roaring lion is seeking someone to devour. He, he is certainly actively engaged in the destruction of humanity to whatever extent God allows. But we often give him all too much credit. The devil is not the arch nemesis to God Almighty. The Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, is not having his sandcastles kicked in. When we see, church, the intensification of evil and the increase of foolish and debased thinking and activity, we do not see a victorious enemy but the wrath of God revealed. We can look around the world today and see ample evidence of God's wrath. Not illustrated in terms of natural disasters, but rather in terms of an increase in sin. Because a nation that is bent on sin is likely a nation under the wrath of God. And when we, church, walk in anxiety and fear over the increase of sin in our society, and especially in fear over evil governance, if we do this, church, we fail to honor God as God and give thanks to Him. The very thing that we are being confronted with here in Romans. The result of failing to honor God and give Him thanks is to be given over to a debased mind, to be foolish in our thinking, to be darkened in our hearts. We fail to recognize that even the worst of what we see is well within the sovereign control of God, who in His providential work actively determines the finest details of reality. And when we fail to recognize God's sovereignty, we fail to honor Him rightly and give thanks to Him in all circumstances, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, which is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You see, church, we are to give God, in every, give God thanks in every circumstance. And so whenever there's a circumstance where you can't think of a reason why you should be giving God thanks for that, means that you need to understand more about what the Scripture teaches about our God. Can you see the wrath of God revealed around you and give thanks rather than walk in fear? One sign of the wrath of God, verse 25 in response to pagans having exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, is that God gives them over to other violations of the created order. Verse 26 to 28. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, our translation doesn't convey this, but Paul uses words here that he doesn't use Anywhere else except for one other time, uh, he, rather than men and women, he says male and female. And in doing so, he's connecting this back to the created order. God 
created humanity to image him, male and female, he created them. And so Paul's picking up on this language of the Old Testament when he says males give up natural relationship with females and were consumed with passion for one another. Males committing shameless acts with males. Inexcusably, modern cultural acceptance of homosexuality has led to an influx of dishonest scholarship on these biblical texts which refer to it as a sin. I have no horse in this race. I had no desire to believe a certain thing. But when we come to the Bible and come to the historic text with an open mind and do real research, you are going to find that this is actually inexcusable. There is no identical term in the Greek of the New Testament. And though Revelation 22.15 uses the two Greek technical terms for men who practice same-sex sex, Many today, wanting to sanitize the New Testament from any possible cultural offense, have come up with all sorts of novel hypotheses why these, for why these words can't possibly refer to romantic relationships within the same gender. And there's a serious motivation here. In fact, it is when we have set logic aside and are led by our emotions. We care about people. We want people to be loved. We want people not to be lonely, especially if it's our own children. And you want to say, well, God would want these people to to lay down and sacrifice uh, the core of who they are at their being, who their identity is. God would want them to give that up. And to, to that I have to say, you have not understood the gospel that calls us all to lay down the core identity of who we are as natural humans, to take up our cross and follow Jesus, to lay down what it is in our selfish ambitions that we want. It's not just one people group, one orientation that the Christian church calls people to lay down their lives. It is all. And if the church has allowed certain people to walk in their natural self, to walk according to the flesh, and then has called other people to repentance, the problem is that we should not stop calling them to repentance, but call ourselves to repentance. Even though people would like to argue about the words, the technical terms used in Revelation 22:15, very few would want to look closely at Romans 1, 26 to 27. Because here, Paul is actually quoting an exact phrase which is regularly used both by the Stoic philosophers in Rome and the ancient Jewish writers that predate him. These, both the, the Greeks and the Jews used this exact phrase, contrary to nature, to describe homosexual relationships, even romantic, monogamous homosexual relationships. You can, anyone can go and do this study. Both the Greeks and the Jews used the exact phrase Paul's using here. Same-sex orientation is not a modern phenomenon. And ancient Greek astro- astrological texts show that they considered such an orientation to be inherited from birth based on a person's astrological sign. So they they understood that some people were same-sex attracted from birth, and they understood that they sometimes had romantic relationships, and they called these, some of them called these, contrary to nature. Although it was very common in Greek society, many Romans, remember the Romans conquered the Greeks, they considered same-sex romantic relationships to be unnatural and unroman, and referred to these unions as contrary to nature. First century Jewish writers, both Philo and Josephus, use 
the exact same phrase, along with the author of the Testament of Naphtali, who sees homosexuality as a departure from the order of nature. Now, I say all this, I wish we didn't have to talk about this, I say all this to explain what should already be perfectly obvious from the text. But many gullible Christians today have been taken in either by blatant liars or else those who speak as though they know without having done any real research on the subject. Today, some of these deceivers want to compare the biblical sexual ethic to the Old Testament laws like the command for men to leave the corner of their beards untrimmed or that clothing not be made from two types of fabric sewn together. But this betrays willful ignorance. When we look at the teachings of Jesus, especially the Sermon on the Mount, it can be clearly seen that the sexual ethic of the church is inherited directly and undiminished from the Old Testament law, and that the vice lists of the New Testament include all forms of sexual immorality which are prohibited in the Hebrew Bible. So there's no diminishment but it is directly carried forward. Jesus teaches the sexual ethic of the Old Testament. Paul, Peter, they teach the sexual ethic of the Old Testament. The link, then, between idolatry and sexual immorality, which we see here in Romans, was also well established in Jewish literature. Especially during the intertestamental period, where one writer uh, wrote, for the intention to make idols is the beginning of sexual immorality, and their invention is the corruption of life. And then they concluded that all sin stems from idolatry. It says, for the worship of idols not to be named is the source and cause and end of every evil. Another Jewish author wrote of the pagan nations, the Gentiles, because they wandered astray and forsook the Lord, have changed the order and have devoted themselves to stones and sticks, patterning themselves after wandering spirits. But you, my children, shall not be like that. In the firmament, in the earth, and in the sea, and in all the products of his workmanship, discern the Lord who made all things, so that you do not become like Sodom, which departed from the order of nature." So what Paul's saying here at the end of Romans chapter 1 is well established in Jewish thought before he writes it. He's taking arguments that they have already written, and he is bringing them again. It was established Jewish thought that sexual sin and specifically homosexual relations was a consequence of rejecting God and turning to idols, which is exactly what Paul is saying here. So why does Paul focus on same-sex relationships here, especially when it receives so little attention elsewhere in his writings? Remember, it hardly ever comes up. He's much more concerned with any, any sort of sexual immorality outside of marriage. So he, he speaks a lot more about heterosexual sexual immorality than he does homosexual sexual immorality. So why does he focus on it so much here at the end of Romans? or end of Romans chapter 1, I should say. He uses the examples of idolatry and homosexual behavior precisely because the Jewish people, the religious people, recognized these as exclusively Gentile sins. Paul uses some sins that the people in the church don't think they have a problem with. And why does he do that? 
This recognition plays right into Paul's strategy to expose all people as sinners. Remember, he's setting up a gotcha moment for the Jewish Christians who think of the Gentiles as worse sinners than they are. The turnaround is coming in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, he's not telling the Jews that they are all homosexuals. He's telling them that they have all practiced the same sin of heart idolatry that refuses to honor God as God and give him thanks in all things. And so there's this gotcha moment. While they're nodding and being like, yeah, those Gentiles, they're really bad, he then is going to bring it right back to them and to us this morning. And so Paul's not here providing pastoral counsel for believers who are struggling with homosexual temptation, nor is he blasting the Gentile believers, some of whom had certainly engaged in every form of sexual immorality. In fact, uh, Paul is, is not concerned with specific types of sin here. Anyone who uses this passage as a clobber verse against homosexuals has completely missed the message. What he's saying is if homosexual behavior stems from a root of idolatry, which his audience already believed, his point is that so do all of the other sins which they and we, church, are guilty of as well. So 29 to 31, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. We nod our heads in agreement as Paul speaks of overt idolatry and sexual immorality. And then, as the list is extended, we start to go quiet. Yeah, yeah, idolatry, sexual deviance, evil, uh, covetousness. Well, I'm not a murderer, but, but a gossip. Oh, well, sometimes we have strife in our home. And even our children have been disobedient to their parents. Paul's audience might still think he has the Gentiles in mind, but now it's getting a little uncomfortable. Precise definitions of these 21 words or phrases is not necessary because the purpose here is not to break them down into a 21-point sermon. But the point is here to be exhaustive. There's quite a bit of overlap between these terms. So Paul's expressing in in the longest, most extensive list of the Bible that the principle that all people commit sin in thought, word, and deed. All deserve the wrath of God because they have failed to honor Him as God and give Him thanks. Therefore, they have been given over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, given up to dishonorable passions, and given a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. The depth and full weight of human sin is communicated in the final verse, verse 32. 
though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Roman chapter 1 carries a remarkable message about the culpability of all people. Not only does it tell us that all people know the truth about God, verse 19, because he has shown it to them through the things he has made, but it also tells us that despite their rejection of the true God and the darkening of their understanding, they are still keenly aware that God disapproves of their behavior. More than that, they know God's righteous decree that those who indulge in such behavior deserve to die. This again, Paul will pick up in a few chapters. The Gentiles, even though they did not have the law of Moses, are well aware of the moral requirements of that law. They not only know what they should not do, but they know that doing so deserves the punishment of eternal death. In the Old Testament, this is referred to sinning with a high hand, essentially angrily shaking your fist in God's face, I will not obey. Not only do they continue to practice the evil things which they know deserves God's sentence of death, but they also give approval to those who practice them, which is the height of wickedness. Those who commit evil, even though their actions are inexcusable, can at least plead mitigating circumstances. You could say, I was deceived, it was the passion of the moment, I was tempted. But those who encourage others to practice evil do so from a settled and impassioned conviction. Spoken about in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I had a long conversation with a young man who had been in my youth group back when I was a youth pastor, and he was lecturing me on the immorality of my Christian faith. He was so certain that having children go through uh, surgery to mutilate them to not look like the sex that they were born as was a righteous thing. He was so certain that aborting babies was a righteous thing. In fact, anyone could be put to death for just about any reason unless they were a criminal. Criminals must be kept alive. Everything was switched around. Good was evil. Evil was good. This is the height of evil. Those who condone and applaud the vicious actions of others are actually making a deliberate contribution to the setting up of public opinion favorable to sin. And so they're adding to the corruption of any number of other people. They're complicit in the destruction of others in a direct violation of the command to love thy neighbor. You see, the hatred of God is so entrenched in fallen humanity that they're willing to risk future judgment in order to carry out their evil desires. Unless we have this picture Paul is painting of humanity, you will not be able to comprehend and understand what we're going to get to in Romans 7, 8, and 9. Until you see that humanity has come to the height of its evil, calling evil good and good evil, 
shaking our fists at our creator who loved us. We will not see that God is righteous in his wrath. Once again, this goes beyond organic stupidity. This is further than anyone in their right mind would ever choose to go. Do you see this? The evil of our world is beyond where anyone in their right mind would want to go, but God has given them a hardening of hearts. This is the hardening of hearts. This is the wrath of God revealed against all who refuse to delight in or submit to God's lordship. All those who fail to honor God for who he really is and give him thanks. If you're you're struggling with this this morning, I ask you just to read this chapter again. Because I I am doing my very best to add nothing to this other than to bring clarity to what is being said here in Scripture. The Christian response to homosexuality and every other distortion of created order is not finger-pointing and hatred but repentance. We see the wrath of God revealed and ignore it to our peril. We, too, have failed to honor God and give Him thanks. We, too, were by nature children of wrath, rightly destined for destruction for the idolatry that we have walked in. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul is verbose in Romans. He is precise and short in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in the work, now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The point of our passage this morning, church is that every one of us, whether we grew up religious and abstained from certain sins, or whether we gave in to every possible compulsion and and lived like absolute sexual deviance, we all rightly fall under God's wrath because all of our sin has at its root this idolatry, the failure to honor God and give Him thanks. 
The point that Paul is making in Romans is that they are all wholly reliant on Jesus alone for salvation. Nobody came in 10% better than the other. No one was slightly more righteous when they received grace. This grace alone gospel that, God, that Paul is preaching here, the gospel of God, salvation in Christ alone, requires that all of us recognize that we didn't lift a pinky finger to do righteous things or to honor God and give him thanks before he called and saved us. This is going to bring peace to a church that's divided. They have Jewish Christians who had abstained from many forms of sin, external sins, and Gentiles who had engaged widely in external sins. And the point is they all come equally. They're on equal pegging, both in that they were once children of wrath, destined for destruction, and in equal pegging in that they are adopted as sons and daughters in Christ Jesus, precious to God and loved. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word. And though it challenges us and confronts us and offends us, it is the truth because you are truth. Father, I pray that you would bring clarity where I have failed this morning and that you would help us to meditate on your word as we are led by the only true teacher, your Holy Spirit. I pray that we would be transformed and changed and that as we preach through a verse that has oftentimes been used to point to others, you would use this passage to point to the sin of our own hearts and bring us to true repentance, to glorify you and give you thanks, because this is the work of your Spirit alone in us. Do this in us, we pray, for the glory of Jesus. Amen.
Jesus.